You're listening to Kenny Marmorella Decrees on the Men's Radio Station. Welcome to Men Speak Radio, where today I get to hang out with my friend from Mensa. With a higher IQ than Einstein, Dr. Peter Marshall is a distinguished psychologist qualified accountant who's written lots of accountancy books, a portrait artist, property developer, actor. Aren't you the head of equity or something as well? I was the um, uh, chairman of the South East Wales branch of equity until very recently. It was a few weeks ago I stepped down. Mm, so if it's the South Wales branch, then surely the Welsh would call you Krachach. I suppose they might, <laughs> yes, yes. But that's another story. Also, <laughs> philanthropist and prolific author, a self-made millionaire in his youth, Peter rode racehorses, maturing into flying aeroplanes and helicopters, sailed yachts and wrote even more books. And at the age of 70, Peter shows no sign of slowing up. In fact, haven't you just landed a lead TV role with an American company? Have indeed. If, um, I can't speak about that so it's I'm top afraid secret. but uh, yes it's correct what you say do you have to kiss Jennison, Jennifer Anderson or anything like that hope not <laughs> <laughs> so do you know when I first wrote this when I first read all about you I just thought well it's alright for some isn't it because he was probably born with a silver spoon was sent to Eton and all of this was expected but that's not your story at all is it no, anything anything but far from that. I grew up in very disadvantaged circumstances. My mother was uh, very, very alcoholic. Uh, I was an abused child. Um, at the age of 14, I had to earn my own living. Wow. Uh, otherwise, I wouldn't have eaten. Um, when I left school, I was just over six stone. Good God. Um, uh, and where so was this? What part of the country? Newmarket. In Newmarket. Yeah. And in those days, were children taken care of, like social services or community or whatever as they are these days, or was it quite a different story? No, my sister and I always say that if th these circumstances happened today, we would have been taken into care. But no, in those days, uh, the authorities didn't interfere very uh, readily in families. So you've been taking care of yourself since childhood? since childhood. Well, not just taking care of yourself, you've been surviving hardship since. Absolutely. Yeah. So how did, you, where did all <clears throat> of this start? How did you take care and become a superstar? <laughs> um, I suppose I've always had the aspirations to do well, and I suppose uh, the disadvantaged circumstances of, of my childhood um, develop my creativity because that's how creativity develops intelligence mm. to a large degree is born in you um, but uh, that's not so with creativity creativity comes about through frustrated aspirations uh, frustrated intentions um, a child who is uh, who has their wishes frustrated uh, has to find a way around them and still get the, what they want and they develop creativity that's how it happens it's plus i suppose it's a personality thing right. i've always been bloody minded i suppose <laughs> <laughs> so are you saying in a way that you have turned bad into 
good you've turned pain into creative expression or something because yeah. and also it's funny that you say creativity because a lot of what you do i mean the memory show and everything i remember reading um in there was something in one of the mainstream newspapers about you learning welsh in a week now that's linear thinking rather than creative thinking do you have the both somehow or well um I don't think I've got any better memory than anybody else. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I understand techniques um, to enhance your memory, um, and I'm pretty good at that um, because I worked in memory research at London University for many years. Mm. Um, and uh, there was a lot of creativity involved um, because the more ways you uh, think about things, the more connections you make uh, in your head and therefore the more routes there are to locating that bit of information that you're looking for. Um, for example, um, if you want to remember, let's say, uh, uh, people's names, if you connect them with an image, if you uh, give that image color, um, if you give that image smell, if you give that image sound, uh, using all of the five senses, and you can use the five senses in many different ways, mm. um, you're making different connections with different parts of your brain. You're um, sophisticating the network in your head. So the more chances there are of locating uh, that particular bit of information you're looking for. So that's why I can remember things. Uh, creativity in setting up the... The, the connections in my head. What I think you're saying, correct me if I'm wrong, is have some sort of a personal relationship with whatever it is you're trying to remember. Um, a creative relationship, that includes the senses. But what I think, what I've certainly tried to do, and what a lot of people that I've worked with try to do, is organize some sort of a filing system in their heads so they know how to retrieve the, I mean, I, I don't think it's actually possible to do such a thing. But you're coming from it in a very different angle. Yes. Um, in fact, it uh, there is some justification in assuming you can make a kind of filing system in your head because uh, one um, dominant model of uh, human memory um, uh, is that it is structured in this way. We, uh, it's, it's a hierarchical model. Um, you uh, organize things into groups and those into subgroups and those into other subgroups. Mm. So to some degree you can do that. Um, but by and large the way things come out of memory is in a rather random or, or a, what seems a random way. Nothing is really random, mm. but it mm. seems a random way. You know, it's it's whatever you're thinking about, there were other inputs connected to that and there were other inputs connected to that and other inputs connected to that. Mm. Things go into your head in a, a, a way that's... Through different types yeah, of Yeah, that's, that's, that's right. This is why if you... Um, in uh, my uh, book, uh, The 5x5 System, which was a memory system... 
produced for research purposes at London University. Uh, one of the five chapters is about overcoming forgetting, and one of the ways uh, uh, that you can successfully overcome forgetting uh, is by trying to think of peripheral things that were in the scene when you input something into your memory. Mm. For example, if you're trying to think of a particular line in a um, uh, for a play or something, if you just uh, and you can't remember it, if you think of the environment that you were in, the curtains of the stage, the people that were there, uh, how cold it was, how hot it was, whilst you have deliberately um, focused on certain aspects and that has gone into your memory in a sort of central way, your peripheral vision has picked up other things unbeknown to your conscious mind so, and it's connected those as well. Now, if you can think of uh, some of the surrounding things, you often will find that what you're looking for will automatically flow into your consciousness. So it's almost like um, anchoring environmentally and then recalling the environment and then it just flows. That's right. Right. Now, you were named Britain's brainiest student in the late 70s. Is it because you used a technique like this? Or how, at that age, where did that come from? Especially considering a few years earlier you were six stone surviving and, I don't know, quite messy, but I'm, I'm guessing. Um, well, it is true uh, that uh, newspapers called me uh, Britain's Bronia student. Um, and I have to admit that some of it was down to memory. I can... Uh, recall uh, some of my accounting knowledge uh, that I had to regurgitate mm. um, was actually put into my head uh, in a sort of pictorial way. I could actually see completed pages of the account. So yes, wow. to some degree, uh, I did use memory techniques. Well, to a great degree, I used memory techniques. As yes. Now, considering at 14, you were in that zone, mm -hmm. how did that affect things socially? Like, were you met? Did you have friends of a similar age or stage? Were you the brainy one? Were you, you know, and how did it affect, I don't know, I'm, I'm kind of thinking social more than anything. Well, I was always in a hurry to grow up when I was a child. Mm. Um, even at the age of seven, I absolutely hated wearing short trousers because in those days kids used to have to wear short trousers and I age. hated it because in my mind I wasn't seven. Yeah. I was 11 or even more, you know. Um, and uh, this continued throughout my childhood. I always felt more comfortable mixing with older uh, kids than myself. Um, and when I was about 14 or 15... I was feeling I wanted to be 18 mm. um, and uh, I lived in Newmarket. I was very short, but everybody in Newport, Newmarket is very short. <laughs> because of so I could get away with appearing to be 18. And when I was just 15, I had a 19-year-old girlfriend. 
Stella Barnes. Um, <laughs> was that a hello to Stella? <laughs> I should think Stella is, well, I don't know. I haven't seen her since those days. Yeah. But interesting, Stella was six foot. What? <laughs> Good But But uh, there you go. But Stella... There's um, no holding you back, even from that age, by the time. No, no, no. <laughs> and as for how comfortable I felt with older kids and whether, I, whether they thought I was the SWAT or the, the brainy one... I was only interested in girls in my mm. teenagers. I wasn't interested in, in anything but chasing the girls, I'm afraid. Mm. Mm. And I think that's reflected in your latest book. There are two books coming out at Christmas. One of them is The Great Memory Show. And I'm going to ask you to read something from that um, smutty piece of historical... What would you <laughs> call it? <laughs> Something like that. (laughs) (laughs) And then there's the memory book for children. Yes, indeed. Well, as you know, one of my subjects uh, uh, on which I'm an authority is human memory. Mm. Um, I worked in memory research uh, for many years at London University. I hosted the great memory shows. Um, um, uh, I was chosen to... Uh, head the memory pod at the Millennium Dome uh, when things were being organised then by there by Peter Mandelson and then of course Peter Mandelson uh, moved over from his role on on that and uh, there were no longer going to be these uh, uh, psychological pods mm. um, which at the time were being sort of overlorded by Professor Gregory the man uh, who. Um, uh, designed the the first lunar lander, mm. um, but he chose me to run the memory pod there. Um, I've written memory books, uh, m- many books on human memory, um, and um, as I've already said, uh, I um, devised the five by five system for the the only. Uh, scientifically validated um, system of memory enhancement that there is. Uh, it had to be scientifically validated because it was designed for research purposes. Mm. Um, but um, it is correct. My book, which I know you're going to ask me to talk about later on, um, is um, a spoof on the memory show. It's a spoof on uh, the um, secret army of Usk. Um, uh, in connection with the memory show, um, it's um, and there are two things and here for me. Uh, you, you just you, you asked about the other memory book, which yes. is a child's memory book, <clears throat> and it's called Engram the Elephant, um, oh. and it is um, presenting the five by five system in a very simple way for children. Mm. It's currently being illustrated. Uh, by my colleague and illustrator, uh, Valenti Lloyd, that will hopefully come out by Christmas. Where do people find the books? Does it all go to Dr. Peter Peter Marshall on Amazon, or what's the best way for people to pre-order? They can pre-order from Amazon or from my website, uh, which is drpetermarshall.com, or from my... uh, from any good bookshop because the, the books are distributed by Central Books of London um, to bookshops throughout the land. So they can order from their bookshop, they can order from Amazon, they can order from Waterstones, uh, or they can order from uh, my own website. 
uh, or from the publishers, Oakley Books right. uh, uh, website. Great. So two stocking fillers. And the great memory show, you had a TV show. Was it on HTV or didn't um, you host a TV show? Was it in the 80s? Um, the... The Great Memory Show always attracted TV coverage. Um, it wasn't a TV show in itself, but it always attracted TV coverage. Right. Um, I'll tell you how it came about. Um, <clears throat> as I said, I worked for London University uh, in memory search for many years. And what we were doing, um, when people research anything uh, like human memory, uh, they focus on the extremes, very, very poor memory or very, very good memory. Now, it's much easier to find people with very, very poor memory because uh, it can arise through accident or uh, injury or disease. It's very, very difficult to find people with very superior memory. Mm. Um, well, there's plenty of people doing the low end. Uh, we focused on the high end. Um, but we, uh, I, I uh, for several years, uh, spent uh, my time traveling the country um, uh, researching particular what we call working universes, groups of people where we might find what we're looking for. They included Oxford history graduates, law graduates, um, taxi drivers, waiters, uh, all um, Mensa members. The mm. last group we, we tried was Mensa members and we found virtually no no one at all. Really, the only person we found in, in those years from this kind of research um, that had any degree of superior memory was Creighton Carvello. Wow. Um, because Creighton Carvello, um, in fact, some years later, uh, tested by me in London, was found to... Uh, be able to recall 19 digits from half a second exposure. Um, wow. But that, that that was unusual. And I think anybody uh, who uh, understands um, human memory enhancement uh, would accept that Creighton, Creighton Carvello uh, was a pretty unique uh, guy, you know, in this mm. respect. Um, so... Uh, as we couldn't find anyone apart from Creighton that had really significant superior memory, we had one last stab at it. And I came up with this idea as I've been working with memory performers like Tom Morton, Creighton Carvello, David Thomas, um, uh, John Burroughs, uh, Dominic O'Brien, Tony Bazan. I've been working with these kinds of people for quite some time, and there's another story as to how I actually ended, started working with those, uh, which I'll tell you if you if you wish. Um, but as I've been working with those people for quite some time, I understood these people very well, and I knew what motivated them. And what motivated them was publicity. They didn't. They weren't looking for loads of money or anything mm. for what they were doing. They wanted to be able to show off their talents. And that's quite understandable because they worked pretty hard at it, mm. and they were proud of what they did. And it's quite understandable they wanted to show off their talents. Mm. So I thought, well, let's set up a memory show, um, get guarantee them TV coverage, um, and then invite them, all memory performers, to come and show off their talents uh, and get on television. <clears throat> and that's how the memory show came about. Um, so we had to guarantee um, uh, TV publicity and radio publicity. Uh, the 
um, last memory show I did uh, featured on the Today program and I was interviewed mm. uh, by John Humphreys uh, on it. <clears throat> uh, this was one that was held uh, in um, uh, Royal Holloway, uh, uh, University of London. Um, and uh, in fact, in the, uh, the book that we're going to talk about later, which is a spoof on the Great Memory Show, um, some of these people who were involved in these memory uh, shows are featured in that book. By name? By name. Whoa. <laughs> <laughs> now, moving on to the Einstein IQ, mm. you also started a charity to help gifted children? Yes, indeed. <clears throat> I was the first research director of uh, Mensa, the, uh, of the, the Mensa Foundation for Gifted Children. In fact, I'll go a little bit further back than that. Um, my uh, doctoral thesis was on the uh, psychological development and educational development of gifted children. Mm. Um, and uh, Mensa sponsored this um, uh, and uh, backed me all the way through on it and um, uh, appointed me their first research director for the Men's Foundation for Gifted Children, which had been around for quite some time, but it hadn't done research up to that point. Mm. Um, uh, I held that position for, for many years until um, I stood down and Carol Birdman took over uh, my position. Mm. Um, um, and uh, so therefore... That's where my interest in and understanding of the experiences of gifted children growing up and gifted adults as well mm. um, uh, comes from. Um, now, from that, uh, I became very aware that, of course, just having a high IQ doesn't mean to say at all that you're going to succeed in life. Mm. Um, in fact... Uh, very often it works against you. The Mensa is full of people that uh, um, are storm and shop assistants and, and so forth mm. because um, <clears throat> it doesn't necessarily mean you're going to, to succeed in life. Um, I think you need... I became very aware that you need other um, qualities as well. Uh, creativity, as we've already mentioned. Mm -hmm. uh, now, high intelligence uh, very often... or almost always um, is accompanied uh, it is um, uh, characterized by very logical very one-track thinking mm. um, uh, there is a tendency not to be able to think outside the box tendency to not have much creativity creativity doesn't very often go along with high intelligence mm. but creativity is at least just as well, I'd say more, it, it's more likely to enable you to succeed in life than high intelligence is. Mm. Um, if you've got both, you're a bit formidable. Um, but even those two qualities are not sufficient. Um, you have to... Very creative people are often very laid back, you know, mm. and, um, and therefore are not going to really struggle against adversity. Um High intelligence people are often very one-tracked, you know, so they're going to be able to solve puzzles and what have you, but 
Um, but that said, I think to succeed in life, you have to have determination. You have to have what we call grit. Mm. Um, you have to have the ability and the the personality type to get the bit between your teeth and not let go and not let anything stand in your way. Um, if you've got those three things, you've got what I call three ring giftedness. So now, IAFO is interested in that. Right. But as I said to you earlier, there is yet another thing. Yeah. Was that what you were going to ask me about? Yes, it was. Yes. <laughs> there is a fourth factor, I think, and that is social factors. Mm. Um, even if you've got three ring giftedness, high ability, high, high intelligence, creativity, and grit <clears throat> if you come from the wrong side of the railway track mm. the odds are still going to be against you yeah. in several ways um, one of the main ways or well, one of the ways of course is the obvious way that you're not going to have the doors open for you this but you've not got anyone to open doors for you so if you if, if you come from the a good privileged background mm. you're going to have people opening doors for you all the way mm. you take um if you if you if you read law at university and you and 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 you um try to get into a barrister's chambers it's really really difficult most give up mm. but if you've got a good privileged background um you're going to have doors open for you they're going to welcome you with op open arms in, into the, so you've got to have door openers yeah. but also there's something psychological as well um, kids from privileged backgrounds grow up with a sense of entitlement mm. to succeed. They feel comfortable. It's their comfort zone. Mm. It's not their comfort zone to not succeed. But Does kids from the wrong side of the railway track, if they start succeeding, they're out of their comfort zone. Yeah. yeah. Um, and they're often seen as upstarts. Mm. Mm. And how was it for you? How was it for me? Yeah. Same, I suppose, but... I'm bloody minded. That's the point, <laughs> you know. Um, I I was determined. I've always felt capable of it, capable of doing anything, you mm. know. And I believe if we can, if we can get gifted people from the wrong side of the railway track over these hurdles to to get, to level the playing field out for them, um, which is what IAFA is designed to do, mm. then all of them can achieve anything. You know, what's the website? How do you spell IAFA? Uh, it's the International Association for High Ability. Right. www.iafha.com. Brilliant. Right. Soon we need to jump into the ad breaks. I love that your childhood has taken things full circle that you can pass things on for other parents and other children and give people a chance in life who may otherwise not have uh, a hope, I mm -hmm. guess, in this world. That's right. And on that note, we need to break for a break. You're listening to Kenny Marmorella Decrease on the Men's Radio Station. As we were saying just before the break, I love the way that you're passing this on to parents and children. And there's another book that you wrote for children as well, isn't there? Um, for parents of children. For parents of yeah. children. Um, educating a Gifted Child. Um, it uh, um, explains to parents in a very unbiased way uh, and a very um, uh, valid um, way um, 
the kinds of problems that their child is going to have and it separates the uh, the valid arguments in the literature from the rubbish in the literature because there is a lot of rubbish in the mm. literature uh, on this subject uh, partly because a lot of the literature is teaching to the, the converted. Mm. But my book, um, uh, Educating a Gifted Child, cuts through it all and gives um, solid down-to-earth earth advice uh, to parents of gifted children. Um, here's a, a, um, a strange question, not strange from my mind. Was there a point in your life or in your childhood um, and I'm thinking alcoholic mother and you fending for yourself and I guess not dealt the best hands when you thought stuff it this is who I am this is what I'm going to do and you really applied yourself or was it always there was there a time when you were ready to give up or were you did you always have this drive can you remember a moment or an incident no I can never remember uh, a moment where I was not determined and ambitious to improve myself. So um, irrespective of family life, food, nourishment, protection, being provided with the basics, mm -hmm. you always had this spark. Yeah, I always, none had, of that. I always had that determination. That's right, yeah. So as far as you're concerned, for you, and I'm guessing maybe this extends to other people from mm. your perspective, mm. is it about accept your situation and choose who you want to be and then follow that? Yes, another of my books, Unlocking Your Potential, yeah, um, uh, really focuses on this. Because as I said uh, uh, before, I'm not only interested in gifted uh, uh, people, yeah. um, uh, I don't believe the world belongs to highly intelligent people. The world belongs to the average people, the people of ordinary intelligence. Mm. Um, uh, and I've focused also on helping these people to, uh, the, the majority of people, to improve themselves in unlocking your potential. Mm. Uh, but also, um, uh, um, unlocking your potential... Um, seeks to overcome the childhood effects of put-downs. And, mm. I mean, the working-class kids um, in the past and probably even today, you know, get told, don't get ideas above your station, yeah. don't be too big for your boots, all that kind of thing. You know, yeah. and it has a big effect on people. Mm. You know, um, if, if a child um, uh, tries to uh, make out their... or, or to, tell their parents uh, uh, they're intelligent or understand something uh, that their parents don't understand. The parents, very often the working class parents, will say, um, oh, you know, this is not the likes of us, mm -hmm. you know, that kind of mm -hmm. thing. Well, it has a big effect on people and unlocking your potential addresses all of those childhood put-downs and all of those um, things that frustrate um, a, a person's maximization of their own potential. So um, does it undo the negative programming? And yeah, so yeah. the point I make at the very start is that nothing limits our, um, uh, our um, uh, fulfillment of a potential more than uh, our own 
thoughts more than mm. uh, what we think about ourselves. Now, the other thing is, um, I'm also interested in the very low intelligence uh, people uh, of society as well. And I make the point, this is one of the reasons why I'm particularly interested in human memory mm. or particularly maximization of human memory. And the motive behind uh, my book, Maximizing Your Memory, um, was, and it, this is made clear in the foreword of the book, uh, th that I believe that memory can be the... Uh, the great inter intellectual leveler. Um, mm. If if people uh, have less than average intelligence, um, uh, understanding how they can maximize their memory um, can enable them to uh, have a leg up to yeah. perform at a level above their intellectual level, mm. you know, mm. um, in their exams. If they can uh, memorize material well, uh, they can perform on a level uh, of people who don't memorize mm. very much but uh, um, do well in exams. In fact, you know, one of the, you know, I said uh, in my work on my researches on uh, groups where we might find superior memory, yeah. one of the groups was Mensa. Hmm. Yeah, highly intelligent people. Hmm. We actually found. Uh, that they have a slightly inferior memory quality to the general population. How's that? Right. That so, is so, so high intelligence doesn't necessarily, well, in in fact, it doesn't uh, correlate uh, with high memory quality. Mm. Um, so, therefore, people with less than uh, average intelligence are likely to be able to. Well, we know they're likely to be able to memorize things yeah, uh, yeah. particularly well yeah. because there's less uh, to interfere with uh, what they're storing in their memory. And by this method, they can enhance their ability mm. so that they can perform on a level uh, equal to those with a higher level of intelligence. So out of interest, I'm guessing there's a simple website that you can go to to check your IQ and see whether you can be on the Mensa. Well, train. there is the Mensa website and there is also the IAFA website, yes. So go to the both and there are yes, tests there. Yes. So people can get to know themselves, um, I guess, on uh, a very linear way. But then with your books, it's like, okay, and here are the tools to make the most of who you are and what you've got. Yeah, maximization, that's yeah. the point. I, w I must stress that... Uh, Having a high IQ is not the be-all and end-all. Mm. Um, you don't need a high IQ to uh, succeed really well in life. If you've got an average IQ, uh, you if, if you apply yourself, you have a uh, more than uh, uh, average, more than good chance of doing anything in life at all. Mm. Um, you don't need a high IQ um, to... Uh, succeed in in life it's very useful if you have yeah. um, but you don't need that what would you say you need in order to succeed with women in order to succeed with women <laughs> right now that is a difficult one you know is it? Um, uh, but then I remember when you were uh, a teen mm -hmm. it seems that that's that was your mission was to chase girls Yes, and yes. then there are bits and bobs in the Great Memory Show book 
Um, that it, I mean, you you tell me. Right. Which is the question? Is it what does it take to to? to th- I mean, well, I, I tell you one thing. I tell you one thing. Um, in my work with equity, mm-hmm. I have just uh, uh, been commissioned to put on three courses for actors. Um, they're, they're, all three are about body language. One of them is about flirting. Mm-hmm. The other is about uh, lying. And the third one is about deal making. Lying? Lying. As in telling lies? Yes, yes. Wow. On the stage. Interesting. An actor. You know, if, if you're yeah. in a detec- detective yeah. uh, series or something, you yeah. know. Um, uh, so one of them, as I say, is flirting. So if I've got it right, <laughs> then I ought to know how to do it. Um, but I probably didn't have it right in those days back then. Uh, but I suppose um, the chase was, I suppose, part of it. So that it, was know? the adrenaline buzz? Yes, the testosterone buzz. I right, yes. right. Yes. Because these days, um, I know that there used to be the whole PUA movement, pickup artists, mm. how to manipulate women to date you or whatever it is. And these days, there's the addiction to all the apps and there's Instagram. I need to be good enough and beautiful mm. enough that everyone wants me, etc., etc. Mm. And what I love about The Great Memory Show um, and I'd love you to to give us a rundown of the book, is it's so real with the characters coming alive, the shenanigans they get up to. It's two or three generations later, they get to know the gossip of what happened and how they are where they are. Um, and there's a reasonable amount of picking up and sordid shenanigans going oh, on. Oh, yes, yes, <laughs> indeed, yes. So do yes. you fancy introducing this not only to the book, but who is Lars Lampeter? Lars Lampeter is an anagram of Peter Marshall. Mm. Mm. Um, writers use a pen name in order to separate the genres in which they write. Right. I mean, Stephen King has, I think it's seven pen names. Um, most of the well-known writers have pen names where they write in, in other genres. Uh, the reason is uh, your, um, uh, your name as a writer is your brand. Mm. And you're, when you're branding, you're everything about uh, you is is part of that brand so if you're if there are more than one genre that you're writing in it's splitting the the brand it's splitting the archetype you know and yeah. it weakens the brand you know um so that's why authors use uh, pen names uh, i have um tried to um keep it as similar to me as, as possible by using an anagram of Peter Marshall. It's just, it's mm. different enough. Great name. Um, um, it's an anagram, as I say, of Peter Marshall. Mm. So tell us about the book, because you you actually live in Usk. I do, yes. And Usk has a huge history mm. um, that people don't know about. But then people didn't know about Barry until no, Gavin right. and Stacey. That's right, that's it. Um, Usk does have, uh, Usk history goes back to Owen Glendower um, and beyond actually it goes back beyond Owen Glendower there's Norman Castle there you know mm. um, but it, it's more recent history um, is um, uh, it's very interesting in in, in the wartime uh, because it was there that the bouncing bomb Barnes Wallace's bouncing bomb was developed at RF Glasgow wow um, uh, and also, 
uh, it's where one of the secret armies was formed. Um, the secret army there was called Jonah Patrol 209, uh, which was um, uh, a group of very able people uh, were recruited to form this secret army, which would make a last stand if the Germans uh, had uh, invaded. Uh, these people were not allowed to tell anybody about uh, this, and they were seen as conscientious objectors because they didn't go in the army, they didn't join the Home Guard or anything like that. Mm. And in fact, so secret was it that they weren't even allowed to tell their children mm. or their families until 50 years after the war. So they had to endure being seen as conscientious objectors, mm. but in fact, they were really, really brave um, people. Now, uh, The Great Memory Show of 1943, this book, uh, I'm afraid it's a spoof uh, on the secret army of Usk. Now, I've already spoken about the fact that I hosted the Great Memory Shows um, in the uh, 1990s. Yeah. Um, uh, what I've done here is I've connected the Great Memory Shows uh, show idea uh, with the Secret Army idea hmm. um, because one of the things about the training of the Secret Army uh, was that they weren't allowed to write anything down in case it got into mm. the wrong hands. So mm. they had to be really good memorizers. Mm. They had to be able to memorize things. And they were trained very strongly in this way. Um, so it seemed very appropriate to mix these two up. But having said that, not everybody is all that um, happy about this because it trivializes the, uh, what was a very brave and, and noble act by these people. So were some of the um, locals saying, how dare you disrespect my yes, grandfather type thing? Yes, in the, uh, in the local newspapers there has been comment that uh, uh, the Samask people, particularly um, uh, people who uh, whose ancestors, grandfather, one particular family whose grandfather was uh, involved in the secret army, a member of the secret army, uh, did uh, write uh, um, in the South Wales Argus uh, their concerns about this. Mm. Uh, but I make the point that a long time has gone by, and in the foreword, I make it very clear that this is not suggesting, uh, tr not trying to trivialise uh, this, in fact, I point out these people were very brave and honourable people. Mm. Um, but also, the Usk was very unknown. Um, not many people know that Usk is even a place. Nor did they know Barry Island was a place. But mm. since Gavin and Stacey, Barry Island is on the map for everybody now. Now, my argument is that this could put Usk on the map. Yeah, but well, not not everybody's happy about that. Yeah, Usk is a sleepy little place, and some people. A lot of people wanted to remain mm. a sleepy little place. Mm. Mm. So give us a snippet then, would you? You want me to give you a snippet from the book? Yeah. Right. Okay. Okay. I'll point out first of all that I point out this is a work of fiction. There really was a secret army of us called Jonah Patrol. Uh, in the Second World War. The names of the members are very similar to those used in the story. The bouncing bomb was developed at dusk and there was a breakout in the POW camp at Bridge End. And there was a great memory show staged by members of London University. Um, but beyond these facts, everything in the story is pure fiction. Let me read a little bit of it. 
First of all, I'll give you an overview of what the story is. Mm -hmm. The Home Guard and the Women's Home Defence both received patchy and unreliable information about a plan to form a special home security force and compete against each other to win the role. Inmates of a POW camp stage a breakout to get back to Germany with this and other crucial information, including the development of the bouncing bomb. In the nick of time, the least likely members of the Home Guard thwart their plan and prevent the tide of the war changing in favour of the Nazis. Throughout the story, the narrator, who is recalling his memory of his wartime experience, is describing his dodgy dealings and erotic capers. Mm-hmm. Now, to give you a, a bit from the beginning and the end, here it is, and it's all in East London vernacular. I was on my way from Manchester to Cardiff following the matches of my favourite football team. I had plenty of time to spare, so I decided to sojourn off the A449 and into Usk. Bryn bugger, as the Welsh call it. <laughs> they, they don't pronounce it or even spell it like that. This, you see, was the place where I sat out the Second World War. I hadn't set foot there since 1946. Not much had changed. The country lanes around were much as they were then. I let me mind roam, and I was back there then, lost among me wartime memories, among nice, gentle, small country town people. Suddenly I was brought swiftly back to the present. Going round a bend in the road, a woman driver shot over my side of the road, and I had to swerve to avoid her. I hooted me horn, and she yelled pig out of her window (laughs) at me. I turned round and I called her a daft old cow that she'd learned to drive at the top of me voice. Then I hit something. I turned round and there it was, lying in the road, not moving. I'd run over a bloody pig. <laughs> there was a breach in the fence and the pig had got out. I got out of me car and I looked at the damage. The radiator was steaming. It was bust. I called the AA and in half an hour they came out and loaded me car onto the rescue truck. The man phoned his mate in a local garage and he confirmed he could replace the radiator for me that afternoon and I could be back on me way by evening. Well, we dropped the car at the garage and I wandered down Old Market Street to have a pint at one of me old haunts, the King's Head. It was lunchtime and there were quite a few in the pub. As I ordered a pint, I seemed to have attracted the attention of a group of young local lads. Nothing changes. Strangers attract attention in small towns. Mm. Haven't seen you around here before, one of them said. You just visiting, are you? You could say that, I said. Why do you ask? Oh, ask it's just a small town, he said. Everyone knows everyone and everyone's business, he said. Son, I said, I could tell you a few things about this town. I was hearing wartime, and I could tell you stories that would make your hair curl. Sex, violence, intrigue, incompetence, stupidity, espionage, you name it, Usk had it all. It had filled the Sunday papers for a year. They all suddenly closed in around me. Go on, then, he said. We're all ears. Brilliant. Well, wow. I'll tell you a little bit about the end now, shall I? Yes, yes, that's good. Cool. Do you know, that is just such a great picture. And I love the pig thing. Mm. And then suddenly in the room and they want to know the dirt on mm. their community. And any small community surely yeah. is built on loving, caring dirt. Yeah. <laughs> and that's what, that's what follows that. Oh, here Let we go. Let me go to the very back. After they have thwarted 
the Germans escapees attempt. Morning after. In the morning I saw the Major come in and I sat in the cafe having breakfast. Um, the professor was with him. They rubbed their hands together to warm him up. It was a parky morning. Good memory show, I asked. When the waitress... I'll go on from this a bit. Miss a couple of paragraphs out. Just then, Sally Mugford and Lady Fanny Fartois came in and went over to a ta table at the other side of the room. Lady Fanny dropped her glove on the floor on the way over. Sally, Mug Sally Fugmud went over to the coat stand to hang her coat up and Lady Fanny alone left Lady Fanny alone. If ever I was going to get an opportunity, this was it, I thought, and I rushed over and I picked it up. I was emboldened by what we'd done. I and me two accomplices really had brought hope to people like her. I took the opportunity and I swept over suavely over to her table. She looked up at me and I looked down into her eyes. I used Creighton Carvello's chat-up line. It worked for him, but it all came out wrong <laughs> for me. Instead of saying I wanted to snatch a kiss and fill her soul with hope, I said I wanted to kiss her snatch and fill her all with soap. <laughs> and instead of the warm smile that Creighton got, I got such a belt round the ear <laughs> that my brain seemed to reverberate against my skull for several minutes. How on earth can you even get away with a name like Fanny Fartwell? Leave alone that. That's outrageous. So what do you think of that? I said to the young fellow that had encouraged me to tell me story. That's the biggest load of bollocks I've ever heard in all my life, he said. <laughs> well, it's true what they say in it. Tell the young what it was really like in them days and they won't believe you. They won't believe you. Wow. Do you know... I can't wait for Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> right, I have no idea how much time we have left. We have eight minutes. That's mm. enough time. That's mm. plenty time. Mm. What we ask for before the end of the show is three life tips. And you have had a ridiculous life and, well, or three or four by the looks of me. Mm. What tips can you give people? And you were born underprivileged, a common boy a common man and my god have you done good <clears throat> i suppose one of the most important tips i would give people um is that they really can <clears throat> be more or less anything they want to be they should not be limited by the expectations that have been instilled in them by others mm. um they should look at what influences have caused them to think about themselves in the way that they do. In okay? um, both a negative That's and the a, first thing. In <clears throat> both a negative and <clears throat> a positive way? Yeah. Um yes. The second thing is I do think hard work is necessary. People have often said to me that you don't you know, it's not hard work that gets you anywhere. Um it's it's um it's nous. Mm. Um, but I think it is hard work as well. I think, well, maybe some people can get good places by uh, simply by nous and luck. But the majority of us, we need to work hard. Um, you take, you know, these 
pop groups are an example you know we often uh, look at them and think well you know they're they're no better than any local group that goes around the pubs you know they mm. but i i don't believe it's just a case of being in the right place at the right time and what have you i i think if you really look into the way they um uh, their route to success they've worked damn damn hard you know how have you um, known with that when to stop when to let go of the bit which horse to back do you have any tips on navigating this because there's um a time to maybe let go with some things and there are some things to just hold on to and ride the wave how do you differentiate right okay well, I would say first of all, don't expect to succeed at everything because if you ex if if you are only expect to succeed, you're going to be afraid of failure. Mm. And if you're afraid of failure, you're never going to get anywhere. I point out in in one of my books, I think is un unlocking your potential. No, it's actually study and learn, because um, I've written another a book on study skills as well, mm. um, uh, how to study and learn. Um, and that is, I, I um, quote um, uh, the road to uh, a quote from the road to Wigan Pier, the road to wisdom, uh, the the um, the road to wisdom. Yes, it's plain and easy to express. Just err and err and err again, but less and less and less. <laughs> There's another. That's the third tip I would mm. give. Don't be afraid of failing mm. because you don't learn anything unless you, you take part fail. and play big enough because when you fail you you look at why you've failed um and you make sure you don't do it again mm. having said that some people do make the same mistakes over and over and over again mm. um and i point this out in unlocking your potential that there are psychological reasons why people do this all about Again, it's all about um, conditioning. Mm. Um, if you're conditioned to fail, if you're told you're not capable of succeeding enough times, you'll strongly believe you're not mm. capable of succeeding. And if you do start to succeed, then you're out of your comfort zone mm. and you'll rush back into your comfort zone. You're much, you can cope with failing much better. Um, I would say that a huge proportion of my work is not just unlearning what's no longer true mm. and what's no longer helpful and limiting mm. but it's also focusing on what needs to grow mm. um, and it's playing big enough to allow possibilities to mm. allow things to happen mm. but the strange thing sometimes can be that uh, an individual can be so programmed to survive and be very good at survival, that that becomes the beast. Mm. Um, man, um, manifesting situations to survive and continuing the Groundhog Day story of surviving those things mm -hmm. rather than getting into creative living. Um, and a very interesting thing that I've found with a lot of the people I've worked with is a sense of betrayal, betrayal of the family, betrayal of the community. This is how we are. This is how I should be. And if I become successful in whatever way, will I lose these people? Will I be, uh, you know, quite often it could be, will I be upstaging my father 
And yeah. a lot of men don't want to do that. They want the father to be the hero. Yes. And especially for the fathers that weren't there or the fathers that were huge. Um, I can't betray this. Have you ever come across that? I emotion? have come across that. I know that, that, that this is the case. And it's not an easy one that to uh, to advise people what's best because it depends if if they're happy happiest with that self-concept um that they are not as good as their father and uh, and well, don't wish you, to be and don't wish to be then why change it you know i i'm not i wouldn't want to i don't think everybody has to succeed uh highly in in life mm. um in in what we normally think of of success like i've done i yeah. don't think that's necessary for everybody it just you know, it, to be it, your it, 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 you know, the only thing that's important in life is to be happy mm. and to be a responsible citizen um, and to not hurt other people. Yeah, um, that's all that's important. It's just that what I've done in life seems to have made me happy. Yeah. You know, it, it, it's it's what motivates me. In 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 fact, the um, the the essence of man is to is is uh, I shouldn't say. Well, on this kind of program, I can yeah, say the essence yeah, of man, you totally. know, um, is is to express their nature. Mm, you know, mm. um, that that that's the goal. Um, that's all you should try to do. And if your nature uh, is uh, a laid back uh, person that just wants to be part of the universe and what have you, that's fine. That's mm. what you should do. If your nature is one that wants to su to succeed in conventional terms, then that's what you should do. You should express what you are. So would it be fair to say, be you, because be you. no that's one right. can be 